with that, uh, I'm just going to go ahead and jump straight into this. Um, with this quote right here, um, the average person makes 35,000 conscious decisions per day. Isn't that pretty crazy? I had to like check that and recheck that and recheck that because I'm like, there is no stinking way. Um, but whether that be what you eat, we have eaters in the house, or what, who you text, or what you text, or when you do homework, or how hard you work at soccer practice, or at your soccer game, or when you go to sleep, or how long you sleep, or how many times you hit snooze, the list goes on and on. Um, and some of the decisions are really small, um, but some of those decisions are actually really big. They're, they carry a, a lot of weight, like what college to go to. Anybody in that boat where you're like kind of discerning, where am I going to go to college? What's next? Maybe not college, but like what's the next step? Um, or maybe there are bigger decisions, like some temptations that you're, you're struggling with. Like, should I drink? You know, like there, there's, a de there's a decision that I have to make and can make that will actually alter my life radically in this season of life. But the majority of our decisions are very, very small, right? The 35,000, the majority of those aren't big. They're, they're rather small. And with so many decisions to make, we find ourselves in a, in a constant dilemma. Um, and, and here is the dilemma. Um, what decision is good or bad, right or wrong? Ethical, unethical, moral, immoral, righteous, evil. How do we determine that? This sermon series has been all about life's biggest questions, things that we all ask at some point in our lives. And here's some of the things that we've been walking through. Um, how did humanity come to exist? Let us off with that. How do we live a good life? The world tells us this is what a good life looks like, but the Bible tells us the good life looks a little bit different. Um, what do I do with my desires? Luke did a great job of, of talking about, man, are desires good? Are they bad? If they're not all bad, how do I act on them in a way that actually brings life and flourishing to my life? And today, we're talking about this question right here. Is there a right or wrong? And who gets to decide what is right or wrong? Is there a right or wrong? Who gets to decide? Like, like every one of these teachings so far, we're going to start pretty like philosophical because these are like big kind of heady questions to wrestle with before we kind of bring them theological, like what the Bible has to say about them. So this question has been um, a question debated from the beginning of time. You bring it all the way back to Adam and Eve, the beginning of time. They wrestled with this and they actually got owned by this question. Throughout history, humanity has defined and redefined and redefined what good and what evil is. So uh, to begin, I want to explain a few ways that people throughout history have understood how we should determine what is good or bad, or how people have decided what is ethical or unethical. And you may identify, as I read some of these, you may identify like, actually, I usually identify good or bad based on that principle. Um, and here are some of them. Common determiners of right or wrong. Common determiner. Here, here's the first one. There's, a more, there's fancier words for every one of these, but I'm just going to kind of give a, a common man's uh, language to this. But here, here's the first one here. Majority vote. Majority vote. Good and bad, this is what this means, good and bad is determined by what is believed by the majority of the surrounding culture. So morality is, de is determined by the norm of the culture. Whether the thing is true or not, if the majority of the people say it's true, it is true. This would mean sexual relationships outside of marriage, if it isn't an affirmed practice, then it's good. 
what, it, what what's acceptable by the people, then it's good. Okay, so like if swearing, maybe you've been at a, in a location where swearing is a common practice. If people are commonly open up to that, then it's like the majority of the people do this, then it is acceptable. But if you do something outside of what's normal, it is unacceptable, it is bad. Um, we're gonna talk about this verse in a little bit, but Pilate actually did this when it came time for the uh, crucifixion or the, the crucifixion of Jesus. He says this, Pilate said, I find no basis for a charge against him, but it is your custom for me to release someone um, to, to one prisoner uh, during the time of the Passover. So, so basically he says, Jesus is not guilty. And then the next verse, he says, it says this, then Pilate took him and flogged him. Why did he do that? Because the majority of people said, we want Barabbas. We, don't, we want Jesus to be killed. So the majority of the people defined what was good and bad. Does that make sense? That's pretty crazy. Um, Pilate was more concerned about making the right impression on the crowd than pursuing the way of truth. Have you ever been in that boat before? Where you're like, dude, I don't want to be the one that stands up and to be the outcast and say, this is not good. Um, so it actually, the majority of the people sway how you feel. You come face to face with truth itself. Um, that Pilate did, and he made a decision not based on truth, but on what the majority of the people said. And I wonder if we get ourselves in the same dilemma. I wonder if we're tempted to be more concerned about what other people say is right or wrong instead of actually looking at truth. And I know this is a tension that we experience because I have been there. We all know what it's like to want to feel like we belong. Um, doesn't it feel so much better to do something you know is bad when everybody else around you is doing it? Can we just be straight up a little bit here? Like it's easier to cuss when like everybody else is cussing, you know? It's like, whoops, I just dropped that, right? It almost feels like permission, like, like you'll be accepted if you act this way. In fact, you should, so you blend in a little bit. I remember in my early years of coming to follow Jesus, I would hang out at the skate park. Any skaters in the house? All right. Got some people, some shredders, okay. I, I, I would be hanging out at the skate park and there, there was a crowd, at least in Baker City, a very particular group of people that would hang there and um, I would and could engage in everything that they were doing without having any conviction or feeling an ounce of guilt while I was there at the skate park because it's just life, it's reality. This is how you live, you know what I mean? You like say certain words and do certain things and engage in certain ways and it was the majority of the culture that would influence me. But we must step back and evaluate how we are being shaped and formed by the culture around us. Like, am I defining truth by what people are saying or am I defining truth by the very source of truth? Let's move on. Laws of the land. This means legal, illegal, ethical, unethical, good, bad, is determined by state or regional laws. Maybe you've seen people that live like this, like the way this way of life says that anything in the parameters of legal is fair game. But there's a huge problem with this, and here's the problem. The problem with this type of morality is that you can still do some really, really bad things that are still considered lawful in the state of Oregon, right? Like living like this would actually lead to disaster. You can legally commit adultery, right? You can legally use and possess drugs. You can legally eat 15 cheeseburgers every night for the rest of your life. And at the age of 18, which some of you are 18, you could legally smoke a pack of cigs a day and the state of Oregon wouldn't bat an eye. Are those things good? According to the 
states? Yes, according to the state of Oregon, they would say, absolutely. It's within the parameters of legal. But according to your body, no. According to your spouse, no. According to your quality of life, probably not, okay? Um, another one is this. If it feels good, it is good. This is how we determine good from bad. My feelings, my desires are the truest thing about me. Luke touched on this. This type of living is essentially making a God out of yourself, meaning your pleasure is of ultimate significance. Um, Romans 3 touches on this. Nope, I don't have Romans 3. I'm gonna read it to you though. It's this. For as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. This is the part right here. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and they glory in their shame. Uh, their God is their stomach. That's such a weird phrase, but the word for stomach here isn't their physical belly. They're not like Buddha, you know, like, oh my God's my belly, right? It actually means your stomach was whatever physical urge you ever had. So like whether it be hunger or pleasure or greed or sexuality, if they see it, they liked it, they want it, they went and got it, okay? That's just the, the life of... Um, if it feels good, it is good. Uh, the next one is this. If it doesn't hurt anyone, it's fair game. Have you guys heard this one before? Like, it doesn't hurt anybody, so I can do it. Okay, uh, that is the funniest phrase. Luke actually turned me on to this. Um, believe it or not, the witchcraft religion known as Wicca has a moral statement that literally is that statement right there. It goes, ye harm none, do what ye will. In modern language, if it doesn't harm anyone, do as you wish. Good or bad is determined by whether I am hurting somebody or not hurting somebody. So if I can avoid hurting somebody or, an, or another person, it is fair game. The problem with this way of living is that there is, so, there, there is no such thing as an individual sin. Did, have you ever thought of this? There's no such thing as an individual sin because all sin affects somebody else. Like if you lie, you've hurt the person that you lied to. If you steal, it damages the relationship you had with that person. If you commit a lustful thought or a lustful act, it's a sin against the person even if they are aware or unaware of it. And ultimately, get this, every single sin damages the image of God that you are made in. So meaning all sin kills you spiritually, emotionally, and sometimes even physically, there is no such thing as an unharmful sin. Isn't that crazy? Which is so powerful. This is so powerful because the opposite is also true. Your decisions to live with Jesus as the Lord of your life will also affect the community. The opposite is true. Every one of these ideas of good and bad brings us to these main two definitions that I want to talk about. And the first one is this, subjective truth. Subjective truth is the belief um, or the truth. Your belief or truth changes based on the individual's understanding, meaning whatever you decide about a certain thing is the truth about that thing. Essentially, there is nothing absolute. There is no absolute truths because what if it's true for me, it can be true for me. But if it's true for you, it can be true for you, but they don't have to be the same things. You guys tracking with me? Okay, so a subjective, the subject decides. I decide, that, that's what subjective means. And here are some subjective uh, statements. Salt and straw is the best ice cream in the world. Is that true? <laughs> Some people are like, no, I see, we're going to start a fight because it's like, that's my truth. It's the best, okay? Trout tastes better than catfish. 
right? You see there, that's a subjective statement. Does it? Who knows? Taylor Swift has great music. Is that true? It's subject. <laughs> I'm start a fight here. These are all subjective truth statements. So get this. A lot of people may agree with those statements or not, but either way, they are not absolutely true or objectively true. These statements may feel true to you. You may be like, literally, it's the best music ever. You may feel deep down. Even the majority of our culture might go, it's true, but ultimately, it's an opinion. At the end of the day, they, they, there are absolutes. Write that down. There are absolutes. The problem with subjective truth is that it is a contradiction in terms. So um, to say there are no absolutes would be to make an absolute statement, right? So Bob had a great point. I was talking to him about this last week. And he said, if anyone ever says there are no absolute truths, he says, you can easily ask if they are absolutely sure about that. Um, or that that statement sounds absolutely true to you. <laughs> so wait, wait, what, what is it? It doesn't take long to build a case for absolute truth. It does exist, okay? Um, Urban Dictionary, I didn't know this, but anybody can throw a definition on Urban Dictionary, and how those, those uh, definitions get pushed to the top is on the majority vote. So literally, Urban Dictionary is all about the most popular version of a certain definition. So get this, this is one of the newest, most popular definitions today, my truth. My truth. What is my truth? It is a non-negotiable personal opinion, which is hilarious because aren't op all opinions negotiable, but not my truth. This is a convenient phrase in avoiding arguments because people can contradict your opinion, but they can't contradict your truth. This phrase is often used when seeking to justify a controversial personal stance or action because you're not allowed to argue with someone's truth. Have you guys ever been in a situation where they're like, but this is my truth? And you're like, but it ain't true, bro. <laughs> like, you could say it's my truth all you want. Sadie Robert Robertson says this, we are so entitled to my opinion that we've changed it to my truth so no one can tell me what is right or wrong. The, the book of uh, 2 Timothy warned us of this day, this day and age that we're living in. It, it warns us, look at how, how clear this is. For a time is coming, and I would say, and has come, when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desire and will look for teachers who tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths. That's the culture we find ourselves in, rejecting truth and, and settling for something less than. Um, a case I'm making today is that we simply cannot hang our hats on subjective truth. If you don't believe me, you should walk into the bank and say, it is my truth that I have $100,000 in the bank and I would like to withdraw my funds. You will quickly come to find that there is an absolute truth and the bank holds to the absolute truth and the truth is you are broke and you're not getting that money and they will tell you that. Um, if, if it was my truth that traffic is not all that dangerous, it's not all that bad, and I pushed you into traffic, acting upon my truth, you would quickly be concerned with absolute truth, right? Not subjective truth. You're like, listen, I don't care what you think is true. I'm gonna get hit, right? You would be, you'd be concerned about harm. Okay, um, Proverbs, the book of wisdom, actually, there's this little line, it's actually at the end of uh, another book, but look at this line. The fool is right in his own eyes. 
I don't want us to be a foolish generation. I don't want us to be a foolish generation where we go, if I say it's true, it is true. No, we need to look at something different. There is absolute truth. In fact, your life may depend on it, and it does. And since absolute truth does exist, who gets to determine what is true? This leads me to the next definition, objective truth. Absolute truth is another way to say that. It's true, um, something that is true for everyone, everywhere, whether they believe it or not, right? Gravity, that's an example. You could just um, not believe in gravity, but is that gonna change the fact that it's actually all functioning and working? Yes, it'll totally change it. If you don't believe in gravity, just try it. You'll like start floating, right? No, it's not based on the subject who is defining it. It's based on the object. It is, it's just true. That's how it is. Something can be true and everyone in the world can deny it and it can still be the truth. Deny gravity, it's still true. Write two plus two equals five on your test and you're gonna get it wrong. Um, this is, get this. You guys got something you wanna share? What's that? What? Okay, that is legit. That is subjective truth right there. So that is hilarious. I'll have to look into that. Wait, what's her, what's her like most famous song? Oh, yeah, okay. I was like, wait, I got my driver's license. Oh, that's hilarious. Uh, um, so get this. Bring it back. Here, here's, here's, here's the point that I want to make. Truth is not determined by personal opinion. It is not determined by majority vote. It's not determined by state law. Truth is determined by the creator and the person who embodied truth. There is a person who embodied truth. And it is true regardless of it, whether you believe it or not. It's true for everyone, everywhere, at all times. R.C. Sproul, puts it great. He says, truth is not defined by our own subjective standards. It is determined by the source of truth himself. And, and I kind of want to get, we have what's called getting to the ache in our sermon. Me and Luke talk about this a lot. Like, what's the ache? What's the thing that like actually drives us to be emotionally moved um, in, a, in a message? And here, here's that part. I'm just going to flat out say it. In a time when truth is so polarizing and so confusing, don't you just want to know the truth for yourself? Aren't you sick of being like, I don't know, they're saying this is true, they're saying this is true, this seems like it's working out for them, like it is true, but this is, they, they're pursuing truth and like following God and their life is falling apart, so is it true? I don't really know. Don't you want truth for yourself? Don't you want truth for the world? Don't you wanna see people stop fighting about things that you know aren't true and it's not working for them? I love the fact that scripture cuts through so many of these issues that we deal with today. It just cuts straight. We can know truth, and we can stand on that truth. Like, everyone is desperate for truth. They just are attempting to find truth in all the wrong places, and we're, we're guilty of doing that. Most of the hot-button issues in our day can be sorted out with God's truth. And um, I want to give you a quick example. It is true that all humans are made in God's image. It's called the Imago Dei. Um, do you know what that means? Well, I just told you. But do you know what that means for humanity? Do you know what that means for a lot of the hot button issues going on in our culture today? Well, let me, let me tell you a few. Human life, because of that, human life should be protected. Human life should be cared for. 
that means that racism is messed up, okay? That also means that abortion destroys God's image. You know what I'm saying? Hot button issues. It cuts right through this. It clarifies. That also means that hate and gossip and slander grieves the heart of God because it destroys his image. Do you see what I'm saying there? Like when we view human life with a truthful lens, we, th- that we are God's masterpieces, it cuts through a lot of the mess of our culture and it gives us a firm foundation to build our lives on. So people are fighting for truth and even dying for truth. But friends, we will never know truth outside of a relationship with God. That's the source of it. Like he is a firm foundation that we can stand on. His truth is absolute truth. It's objective truth. It's true for everybody at all times, regardless of whether you believe it or not. I think of uh, Noah. People are like, dude, you're crazy. Why are you building a boat in a desert? And they didn't believe him. And their life depended on <laughs> believing him. You know what I'm saying? When, when Thomas comes to Jesus in the Gospel of John, Jesus states it plainly. I am the way, I am the, and the life. Jesus is truth in the flesh. What, what he says is true, what he does is good, is pure, it's sinless, and this is a big deal. Are we living lives of truth, are we, or are we living a lie convincing ourselves of a life that simply will not lead us to a flourishing life? Are we going, Jesus says he is the truth, so I want to stand on what Jesus is saying, or are we convincing ourselves, fooling around, thinking, this is going to lead me to life? When, are we living according to truth, though, or are we living a different reality? C.S. Lewis, like, hits the nail on the head when he says this. Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Friends, the truth of Jesus is infinitely important. It's of utmost importance. It is so important that we ought to rearrange our entire lives from the ground up around this truth. That's what we do here at Youth. Not just on Wednesdays. We want to rearrange our entire lives from the ground up, from the moment I wake up until, well, not even until I go to sleep. I even want to stand on the truth when I'm sleeping. You know what I'm saying? Like what... What Jesus defines as good, we ought to pursue it. What Jesus defines as sin, we ought to avoid it. Only the one who created us has the right to define what is good and what is bad. Did you know if you created something, you can kind of define, this is going to flourish. If it does it this way, it's going to break. If it does, God does that with us. He's like, listen, I'm going to create you, and I get to determine what is good and bad for your life. Is your life built on truth, or is it built on something else? Honestly, ask yourself that question. Does Jesus have authority over my life or does something else? So Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, this is so good. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. What will lead you to freedom? The truth. And what leads you to the truth? abiding in his word, abiding in him. The greatest life on offer, the literal greatest life on offer, a life of joy, not not absent of difficulty, a life of joy, a life that flourishes here and for eternity, a, a life free from guilt and shame. Man, when I first came to the Lord, the guilt and shame falling off was the most freeing thing of all time. Um, 
a life that's like lived freely and lightly? Have you ever just been free to be yourself? You ever have a friend where you're like, I can just be and say and do whatever, and they just love me, it's just so fun? You could be like that in front of the Lord, unashamed. You know what I mean? A life freely and lightly lived regardless of the circumstances. It is a life under the Lordship of Jesus. It is the man of truth, the man of truth. The enemy loves to convince people that it's actually slavery to follow God, where they go, dude, church is boring though. And it's gonna ruin your fun. You're gonna have to wake up early on Sundays and like, you can't say fun words. And you know what I mean? And the enemy loves to be like, it's gonna be, it's gonna be so lame. But I can honestly say my life didn't truly begin. I wasn't truly free until I sought after Jesus. It was, that's when real freedom happened. In fact, all those other freedoms led to bondage in my life. There's this worship lyric that rings so true. I love it. It goes like this. I found my life when I laid it down. I found my life when I laid it down. If you haven't laid your life down before the Lord, I want to encourage you to do so because I, I really believe that you'll find your life in that moment, in that place. Like if you truly want to live, if you want to experience abundance and peace and hope and joy, and you want to be set free, seek Jesus, draw near to him, and he promises to draw near to you. The scriptures say he's standing at the door and knocking. Most prophetic meme of all time, open the door. You know what I'm saying? Open the stinking door. Is that even a meme anymore? I've always wanted to say that, but that was the time. If you abide in his word, if you sit in his presence and open his word and rest in him, the result will be freedom. When, 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 when we don't live according to the truth, we will find ourselves enslaved. And some of you know this all too well. Maybe you're sitting here and you're like, I need freedom. This is terrible. Like the, the truth that I've been living after just is not working. Um, you've lived for yourself and it just isn't working quite like you thought. Um, shift gears for a second, wrapping up. Why is it even important to live a morally good life? Why is that important? We, here's why. We are called to be a compelling community of goodness that points towards a better future. We're called to, like when people see our community, they're like, we need to be a compelling community that points to something different. Christians are signposts to heaven. You ever, you ever view yourself like that? Like a signpost? Like when people see you, does it point towards something bigger and better and something that they can receive now or something to come? I know I'm just thinking of a lot of the leaders in this room. I'm like, dude, I see that in you. And I, a lot of the students in this room. But what a vision. Like when people, when people experience Daniel, it's like, dude, do I actually get a vision for heaven? Like that's, that's what we're called to be. There, there's nothing compelling about an untransformed life. Like we live a good life because it's like it points to something better. Like when we live good lives, it points to something greater than ourselves. Jesus, is, his people are called to be salt and light right? Bringing flavor, bringing light into the world. A morally good life is evangelistic in nature. Because who wants to, who, who in the world would do that? I'm a Christian, and then they're living like hell. You go, I don't want to be like, what do you, I don't want to be like that. Right? In the book, or, I don't want to join whatever pursuit they're going after, right? Jesus wants us to live a compelling life. So in the book of Daniel, we read of um, three people who knows their names. Right. Great job. <laughs> yep, must be. These men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were commanded to obey King Nebuchadnezzar um, and 
And he was demanding people to do things that were against um, the truth, that were against good and bad. God had put them on a path. He says, I want you to do things this way. And King Nebuchadnezzar says, nah, I want you to do things this way. I don't want you to eat forbidden foods. Believe it or not, there were some. It was kind of like the gluten stuff back in the day. I want you to bow down to other gods. And these three dudes made a decision to stand on truth and to pursue goodness and righteousness, even in the face of threat and mistreatment. Uh, these men refused to disobey God. They're like, nope, this is where I draw the line. And for doing so, they got thrown into a giant furnace and left for dead. And they died that day. No, I'm just kidding. The, the only problem is that God delivered these, these men. That He delivered these men. They didn't die. King Nebuchadnezzar was so blown away that he recognized the Lord as God and promoted these boys into leadership. People are changed when we stand on truth. People are changed when we stand on truth. People above us, people below us, our, even our promotion might even change when we stand on truth and become unwavering in truth. When we live compelling, unwavering lives that pursue holiness and purity and goodness, things literally change in the world around us. It just does. I've heard it said like this. You make your decisions, and then your decisions make you. But I think that there's a better one here. I'm gonna cross this one out and add something because I think it's so true. You make your decisions and then your decisions make you and the world around you and the world to come. It doesn't just affect you, it affects the people around you and then those people affect the other people. And then for generations, like your life has this reverberation effect throughout the ages. We need more Shadrach, Meshachs, and Abednegoes to step into the secular culture and to give a compelling alternative way of living that leads to true life. It's a very long sentence. But you standing up for truth, you choosing good instead of evil, literally gives people a glimpse of heaven. That's pretty cool. That's legit. Um, and just to give you a small idea of what the scripture says about living a life that pursues good instead of evil, I want you to see this list right here. Do not withhold good. Your good deeds are evangelistic in nature, the salt and light verse. Whatever good you did for the least of these, you did for Jesus. So do good to others. You do good for Jesus. Do not grow weary in doing good fellow Christians. You were created for good works. Be rich in good deeds. Devote yourself to doing what is good. Spur one, spur one another on to good deeds. Dude, keep fighting the good fight. Do not forget to do good. Isn't that crazy? All throughout scripture, an ethical, good, moral life is a life with Jesus as king, with Jesus calling the shots, saying, if you say it, I believe it. You know that song? I'll take you at your word. If you said it, I'll believe it, right? I want to loop back to the verse we read earlier. Um, this was a time in Jesus' day when truth was confusing. People are saying, Jesus is the worst, and some the followers are saying, no, he's the son of God. Truth was like all sorts of confusing. And um, Jesus explains something that is very pivotal in this verse. He says this, so Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus, Jesus, and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. This is hilarious right here. He says, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting 
that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. So he's like, if I wanted to stop this, I would have, because I could shred you in no time. But my kingdom is not of this world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. And get this, he explains the whole purpose for which he came to this world. For this purpose, I was born. And for this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. The man of truth. The man of truth. Everyone who is of the truth does what? Listens to my voice, listens to Jesus's voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? What is truth? He's like, that's the point. It's me. <laughs> I am truth. After, at, this is crazy. After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release the king of the Jews who is found guilty? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. And it says in the next verse that they delivered him to be scourged. That's crazy. What is truth? Those, um, those who are of the truth listen to Jesus' voice. We are asked this same question. We're asked this same question. How, how are we defining truth? How are we going to define truth? Will it be defined by the very embodiment of truth, regardless of how you feel about it? Or will we take control into our own hands and define truth for ourselves, how we see fit? Vernon McGee, this old like pastor back in the day, he'd, he'd be like, I can't even remember the saying, I'll try to remember real quick. He'd be like, man, okay, nope, I'm not gonna try to do it. It was, it was really good, but I lost it. <laughs> I really want it, it's right there, but I'm not gonna. Um, we weren't created, that. I wanna end like this, again. We weren't created at the same time to be moral robots. Because we're not called to be like religious goody two-shoes. Like I did all the right things. I prayed, I went to church, I did this. These are all good things. They can all be good things, but you know who ticked Jesus off the most? People who did all the right things for the wrong reasons. People who did all the right things with the wrong hearts. People who thought that they were better standing because they did all these good things. Um, Jesus isn't just trying to redeem our behavior. He's trying to redeem our hearts from the inside out. Okay, so like from the head, I know it's truth, to the heart, which is like, okay, I deeply know that it's true, to like I live this out in my behavior, from the head to the heart to the hands, that kind of a transformation. Does that make sense? With that, may we be a community who seeks after truth. May we build our lives on the truth that is the God-man, Jesus. Let me pray for you, and we're gonna jump into small groups. God, thank you for this group. Thank you that you've given us a, a clear vision of what truth is, and that truth can be grasped on, and that truth can be stood on, and that when we are confused, when we don't know whether to turn left or right, you not only have given us your spirit, you've given us your word, but you've given us a community to belong in and a community that can sharpen us and help us discern good and evil. Help us to live good lives in such a way that cause people to want more of what we have. Help us to be bold with our faith and introduce people to who you are and the life that you want for them. So God, we just, we stand on your truth and ask that you would help us to bring this truth into the world. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.